Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and the confusion stops here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Today we're going to be talking about the five virtues of chivalry and how the universal call to holiness should encourage us to follow in the footsteps of our medieval forefathers in the pursuit of spiritual knighthood. But uh, to begin today's program, I want to talk about mercy, mercy and indifference. Of course, we hear a lot about mercy these days, and we, all of us, must count on God's mercy for entrance into heaven. Uh, In my office at home, I have a framed print um, of a pre-Raphaelite artist, uh, Edward Byrne Jones, painting of his. And in that painting, there's an armored knight who's kneeling at an outdoor shrine as the corpus of a life-size crucifix reaches out to embrace him. And the painting is called The Merciful Knight, and it illustrates the 11th century story of Sir Jean Galbert, who was a knight that forgave his enemy when he could have destroyed him, and how he was then rewarded by this miracle in token that his act of mercy had been pleasing to God. Mercy is one of the great qualities of Christian chivalry, which we're going to be talking about today. But what is mercy? Mercy is not punishing a wrongdoer as severely as he deserves to be punished. The motive for mercy is love of neighbor and hope for his renewal. But mercy is impossible without an objective moral standard and the recognition that the wrongdoer's act deserves punishment. You know, I'm something of a collector of Bibles, and I have various translations with notes and commentary from various theological viewpoints. Uh, Some of them include charts. (laughs) I, I personally benefit from seeing information that's organized visually. That's why I like those so-called uh, infographics on the internet, which are just it's a fancy name for chart. Uh, and there's charts in this one particular Bible that are presented from an evangelical Christian perspective, and so in some cases they're not uh, all that useful to a Catholic, theologically speaking. And a case in point is this one chart called, Why Did Jesus Have to Die?, that's the heading, and then they, they lay, the chart lays out their reasons. But that's fundamentally the wrong question. Um, the question is not, why did Jesus have to die? The question is, did Jesus have to die? During the, uh, the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this chalice pass from me. Yet thy will, not mine, be done. So the question is, could the chalice have passed? In other words, could the redemption still have been accomplished if the cup had been taken away? And it might surprise you to learn that the church's answer is yes. Jesus Christ is God, God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity. As God, he is an infinite person, and his every act has an infinite value. Therefore, the blood shed in his circumcision would have been sufficient to satisfy the justice of uh, God the Father. But while it was not technically necessary for him to die, it was most certainly fitting. Because our Savior took upon himself the sins of all mankind as our covenant representative, as our new Adam making up for the sin of the first Adam. And, And 
our sins merited death. His terrible, brutal, torturous death, that is what we deserve for our sins. So, you know, for a Catholic to say that the death penalty is always and everywhere inadmissible suggests that the the person guilty of a capital offense does not deserve a capital punishment. And that, in my opinion, is inconsistent with the revelation of God. Of course, we know capital punishment is not always necessary, and it's certainly possible to show mercy to the guilty. But mercy is impossible without recognizing that capital crimes deserve capital punishment. In order to show mercy, we must first acknowledge justice. You know, very often in, in the Arthurian tales, right, the stories of King Arthur's knights, uh, you'll see these villainous knights are overthrown by, oh, say, Sir Lancelot or Sir Gawain or Galahad or whatever, only to cry mercy. And typically their lives are spared by the hero under the condition that they hasten to Camelot, go before King Arthur, admit their guilt, uh, and then submit to his judgment. And in many cases, these recreant knights abandon their bad customs, you know, locking damsels in towers or whatever, and um, embrace true chivalry and wind up joining the Knights of the Round Table. And that, of course, is the whole point. When the heroes show mercy, they give the recreant knights the chance to do what is right. And at the same time, they demonstrate their belief that even an apostate knight wants to do right and can do what is right. In other words, the mercy shown them aids in their personal struggle to be good, their own personal quest for holiness. And therefore, if a person's action is wrong, you know, if they're guilty, but you withhold just punishment for their own good, for the wrongdoer's own good, then you have performed an act of mercy. And that's no nonsense. But why bring this up? Well, this is important because some Catholics today would withhold due punishment, not from love of the sinner, but from indifference to his sin. And this is not mercy. This is laxity. That is an erroneous conscience where the mind decides on insufficient grounds that the sinful act is really permissible or that something gravely wrong really isn't that serious. Now, there are good reasons to show mercy, not the least of which is the fifth beatitude that I opened the show with. But there's never any legitimate reason to be lax because indifference is an insult to God and offers no support to the wrongdoer's effort to be and to do good. It is, it is a sine qua non of the quest for holiness that Catholics have a horror of committing sin. And today it seems that most Catholics, even many highly placed you know, clergy and, and politicians, teachers and so on, have a much greater fear of being considered judgmental. For Catholic leaders to fail to condemn sin, including but not limited to, you know, deviant sexual practice and the Holocaust of abortion. I say for them to fail to condemn such sins is itself the grave error of laxity, an error uh, for which I dare say they have no horror at all. And hence the words of Pope St. Pius X, who said, all the strength of Satan's reign is due to the easygoing weakness of Catholics. 
Laxity is a fault that is directly related to the sin of indifferentism, which is the idea that all religions are more or less good and praiseworthy. You know, it is into this indifference that many modern Catholics have fallen. As with so many modern errors, and laxity isn't a modern error, <laughs> um, what's modern is that uh, the Catholics, Catholics will, will turn to Vatican II for justification. Right? There's always been a laxity, but there hasn't always been an a ecumenical council that you could appeal to for justification. After all, they would say, Vatican II, didn't that teach us finally the value of religious liberty? You know, but let me repeat for the thousandth time that Vatican II did not change the teaching of the church. It has always and ever been her policy that man's free will must be respected, and consequently there should be no coercion in religion. But it does not follow that all religions are therefore equal. In fact, it is the very Vatican II Declaration on Religious Freedom that states, and I quote, the church is by the will of Christ, the teacher of truth. It is her duty to give utterance to and authoritatively to teach that truth, capital T, truth, which is Christ himself, and also to declare and confirm by her authority those principles of the moral order which have their origin in human nature itself. So the church has the divinely ordained duty to teach Christ, and to uphold both the divine law and the natural law. Now, there's always people who are going to say that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right. But I tell you that attitude is an insult to God. God sent his own son into the world to teach us the way to heaven. But if God went to such an extreme to teach us, then it must have been very important to him that we would know and believe what he teaches rather than believe whatever we please. To say, then, that it doesn't matter what we believe is not only an insult to God, but it is to imply that there's no difference between truth and error, that, that both truth and, and falsehood are equally good, which is nonsense. It's a contradiction. Besides, if it were true that it doesn't matter what we believe, so long as we live right, who would decide what constitutes right living? The state? See, because in, in that case, execution without a trial, as they have in some countries, would be right. But if not the state, then, then who? The majority? So when Ireland became the first country to legalize abortion by majority vote, did that make it right? Clearly, without faith in Christ, we cannot live right. Which means right in the eyes of God, who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. The only begotten Son, Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, not a way or one way or uh, among many ways or the preferred way, the way. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Now, you can certainly deny that claim, but you cannot pretend that his religion is the same as every other religion. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be elements of truth in other religions. And we're going to talk about that when we come back. And also talking about the five virtues of chivalry, virtues that we need to embrace in our own quest for spiritual knighthood today. Stick with us, BMPR. We'll be right back.
Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show and the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. Jesus said in Matthew 26, Stay awake and pray that you may not enter into temptation. According to St. Ephraim, Jesus, who feared nothing, experienced fear and asked to be freed from death, although he knew it was impossible. How much more must we persevere in prayer before temptation assails us, so that we may be freed when the test has come? May God grant that we may withstand temptation and carry out his will in all things. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for keep it simple Catholicism. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that all religions are not the same, and that is the sin of indifferentism, to think that all religions are are basically uh, the same. They're all good and praiseworthy all leading to the same place just by different avenues. Because Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And again, as I said before the break, you can deny that, but you can't uh, reconcile that as being the same as all these other religions. And that doesn't mean that there can't be elements of truth in other religions, just that they are not all equally true. Again, and this is according to Vatican II, in the decree on ecumenism, it says the Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in other religions. She regards with sincere reverence those precepts and teachings which often reflect a ray of that truth, capital T, truth, i.e. Jesus, which enlightens all men. So what does that mean? It means that the Catholics, uh, Catholics reverence the truth wherever it's found, because the truth is Christ. It goes on, indeed, she proclaims and ever must proclaim Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. And that is why Catholics maintain that the Catholic Church alone possesses the fullness of the truth, and that other religions are wrong 
inasmuch as they disagree with that fullness. As it says in the book of Acts, there is no salvation in anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Okay. Um, as I often point out, there is from the church a universal call to holiness, what the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection. This is at the core of what St. Bernard of Clairvaux dubbed the new knighthood, what came to be known as Christian chivalry. Now, to understand what this spiritual chivalry is about and how to live it out in our own lives, we're going to take a look at the traditional five virtues of chivalry, namely fidelity, honesty, courtesy, prowess, and largesse. And this is applicable to us all, uh, spiritually speaking, but um, I'm going to direct my comments particularly at the men in our audience, and that means you. So fidelity comes from the Latin fides, or faith, and that means, first of all, faith in God. Now, I've seen various modern attempts, you know, on the internet to revive the ideals of chivalry, um, you know, amongst modern men, but without God. And that's a fool's errand. You know, I, I even recall seeing a question posted on one of these, you know, modern chivalry websites asking if it were possible to be chivalrous without being a Christian. And that's an important question. Certainly there are natural virtues. Certainly there are admirable historical figures like Alexander the Great or, or Marcus Aurelius and other so-called noble pagans. And you know, as the word, the word chivalry literally means horsemanship. You know, it comes from the, the French word cheval, which is horse. Likewise, the German word for knight is ritter, rider. So what originally distinguished knights from other warriors is the fact that they were mounted on horses. You know, that's why a knight wins his spurs as a symbol of his knighthood. Uh, but the institution of chivalry comes down to us via the rule of life uh, that was written for the Knights Templar by St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and his treatise called In Praise of the New Knighthood. What we know as chivalry is, therefore, fundamentally Christian and, more to the point, Catholic. Hence, the theological virtue of faith informs the chivalric virtue of fidelity or loyalty. Now, for the medieval knight, fidelity, uh, this virtue wasn't some abstract concept because it was woven into the very fabric of his society. First and foremost, of course, it was fidelity to God and the knight's willingness to pursue and practice the theological and moral virtues and to take as an ideal Christ himself, which uh, you know, requires fidelity to his church. Hence, the first commandment of chivalry is thou shalt believe all the church teaches and shall observe all her directions. The organization of medieval society was feudalism, which is based on oaths of loyalty to one's liege lord and accepting responsibility for one's underlings, because both superiors and inferiors fall under the umbrella of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, in the two great commandments, Christ reveals that we cannot love our neighbor unless we first love God. The two great commandments, to love God above all else and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the whole law, go together. If we want to know what is good and just and noble in terms of the way we treat others, then if we want to truly respect the dignity of others, we must first respect the rights of God. Fidelity includes loyalty to king and country, to your family, 
to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbor, but to God first. A knight does the right thing simply because it is the right thing to do. But what makes something right in the first place is that it is pleasing to God. The virtuous or chivalrous man is one who makes a habit of living in a way that is pleasing to God. As followers of Christ, we believe that pleasing God and doing what's right in His eyes will also bear fruit in terms of doing what is good for others as well. And vice versa. Remember, Jesus said, whenever you did it for one of the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Therefore, we must not be intimidated by ridicule. The ridicule of the world. It's a powerful weapon against everything that is good and true and beautiful just to make fun of it. Uh, we, we saw that, I mean, there was a lot of that going on in the presidential debate last night uh, with um, Mr. Biden referring to Trump as a clown and saying everything this man says is a lie and, you know, he's responsible for all these bad things, uh, which, of course, he, you know, uh, he's responsible for the bad economy, which is because of the lockdown, which means that somehow he's responsible for the COVID virus, I guess. You know, but, but, it's, but it's a matter of ridicule. And so we have to... Uh, you know, not be intimidated by those who accuse us of being, you know, that religion is superstitious or that we're racist or sexist or homophobic or, or et cetera, et cetera, because of our fidelity to the truths about God and man revealed by our religion. Jesus himself said, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven. God comes first, and all good comes from him. Therefore, we must believe that defending the natural law and defending the rights of God is ultimately in the best interests of other people, even our enemies. And so while we of the contemporary spiritual chivalry are not called to the lists you know, to defend our honor in the joust, we still have opportunities to defend God's honor and our own by standing up for what we believe. The third verse of the book of Jude says, Beloved, I was just at the point of writing you about the salvation we share when it became necessary for me to write to urge you to fight earnestly for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. But how many of us shun that kind of confrontation? Thomas Akempis, in The Imitation of Christ, he says, If only we would exert ourselves and take a firm stand in the battle, we would see how God comes to our aid. For he is always ready to help those who put their trust in him. He even provides occasions for us to do battle so that we will overcome and be victorious. So it's important to see attacks on our faith as opportunities actually provided by God for us to stand up for his honor. And and we can gain great merit thereby. And this is an important point because too many Catholics seem to think that it's better and even more in keeping with being a Christian to avoid the fight altogether. And they really think they're doing the right thing. Let's give an example. Say somebody disparages the concept of patriarchy. But you don't stand up. You don't stand up for, for your own fatherhood or for the fatherhood of God. You don't dare suggest that not only is patriarchy not a problem, but that it's actually something that we stand in more need of. We need more patriarchy, not less. And you keep silent for being, you know, for fear of being called bigoted or, or misogynist or intolerant. 
and he won't correct anyone because, after all, everybody's equal and everybody's entitled to their own opinion. So all opinions are equal, and to contend with them would, would be narrow-minded. And some have made uh, like a cardinal virtue, one might even say an idol of this brand of tolerance, to the point that a bishop of the Catholic Church would publicly proclaim that Christ is merely the preferred way to heaven. Now, fidelity, among other things, means a rejection of the modern idea that tolerance can be the touchstone of religion. Tolerance is a value, and it can be a virtue, but it's not an absolute one. Bishop Sheen wrote an essay called A Plea for Intolerance. I'd like to read you a little bit from it. He said, America, it is said, is suffering from intolerance. It is not. It is suffering from tolerance. Tolerance of right and wrong, truth and error, virtue and evil, Christ and chaos. Our country is not nearly so much overrun with the bigoted as it is overrun with the broad-minded. The man who can make up his mind in an orderly way, as a man might make up his bed, is called a bigot. But a man who cannot make up his mind any more than he can make up for lost time is called tolerant and broad-minded. A bigoted man is one who refuses to accept a reason for anything. A broad-minded man is one who will accept anything for a reason, provided it is not a good reason. It is true there is a demand for precision, but it is only for precision in scientific measurement, not in logic. The breakdown that has produced this unnatural broad-mindedness is mental, not moral. The evidence for this statement is threefold. The tendency to settle issues not by arguments but by words. The unqualified willingness to accept the authority of anyone on the subject of religion. And lastly, love of novelty. And that's more true today than when Sheen wrote these words decades ago. Certain words are now used to cancel a person out without addressing their argument. Patriarchy, white supremacy, systemic racism, just shuts down the conversation. People who wouldn't know what to do with themselves on a rainy afternoon are suddenly experts on eternity. Nancy Pelosi calls herself a devout Catholic, but says that she considers abortion on demand sacred. And, and novelty, oh. The mischief that has been done by novelty in the last 55 years. New theology, new morality, new paradigm, new order of the mass. The virtue of fidelity requires something unchanging to be loyal to. And so fidelity rests on the truths of faith, just as the balance of the chivalric virtues rest on fidelity. And the next virtue of chivalry is the virtue of honesty, which is connected, as you might imagine, from the word itself to the idea of honor, that we should do the right things for the right reasons and consider it an unbearable shame on our reputation and on our conscience to ever do anything dishonorable or dishonest. And we're going to talk about that when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hey, also want to give you a quick reminder, this coming Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, they're going to have a premiere of a special edition of the Bishop Strickland Show with Bishop Strickland and Father James Altman. Don't miss it, Friday at 5, and we'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the Help of the Helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR, and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the five virtues of chivalry. And next up is the virtue of honesty, which is connected to the idea of honor. You've heard the old saying, my word is my bond. Right. This means that uh, the virtue of honesty, the virtue of honor, that if I give my word, it's just as good as having a signed contract. Honesty means keeping our promises, uh, particularly to be faithful to our oaths of baptism. For the married, it's to live up to the vows of matrimony. Right. It's not for nothing that adultery is called cheating because it is an affront to the virtue of honesty. For priests, it means keeping their vows to the church and cooperating with the grace of holy orders. And for uh, religious, the religious, it means to live honestly according to the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. To have the virtue of honor means to be animated by the pure motives of love of God and neighbor. Being honest, it's about being the same on the inside and as you are, or the same on the outside as you are on the inside. Uh, which is, it's about not living a double life. Uh, it, in fact, considering that kind of uh, hypocrisy intolerable, something that would make it impossible for us to live with ourselves. When you look at the scandal of the, uh, you know, in the Justice, 
Department and the intelligence community over the persecution of Donald Trump. So many have trampled on the virtue of honesty. So many men and women have forsworn themselves. Men and women vowed to uphold the law, conspiring against a sitting president, ignoring the law of the land, ignoring the will of the people, even laughing about it. And the same goes for the academy. How many high schools are providing students with dishonest diplomas? A high school diploma is an official declaration that a student has demonstrated sufficiency in math and reading, writing. And yet how many students try to enter college without an adequate mastery of these basic skills? And as for contemporary colleges and universities, many have ceased to be institutions of education at all and have become mere centers of indoctrination. All of this contradicts the virtue of honesty. And perhaps the worst offenders against honesty are the mainstream media. It's come to the point that newspapers, periodicals, television news are entirely partisan and make virtually no attempt at unbiased reporting. I mean, are we so jaded that we cannot see how important it is to restore the virtue of honor, which includes a horror of sin and all that is dishonest and dishonorable? The lack of honesty is tearing our country apart. Jesus said, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more is of the evil one, the devil. This divine teaching is reiterated by St. James, who warns, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, that you may not incur condemnation. We forget there are, there are consequences to our sins. In his classic book on chivalry, Léon Gautier said, there is more than one kind of chivalry. And lance thrusts are not everything. In place of the sword, we have the pen. In place of the pen, we have speech. In place of speech, we have honor in our lives. Honor, it's a keynote of chivalry, and it proceeds from the virtue of honesty. And next up, we have an often misunderstood virtue, which is the virtue of courtesy. You know, I talk about chivalry all the time, and I think when some people hear the word chivalry, they immediately think of a gentleman holding a door for a lady, or Sir Walter Raleigh throwing his cloak on a, over a puddle so that Queen Elizabeth doesn't get her shoes muddy, something like that. But that's not chivalry, that's courtesy. Courtoisie, courtliness. It's important. It's a virtue. It should be practiced. It should be developed. It is a vital part of chivalry. But the two should not be conflated. Why? Because an effeminate man can be polite. Because even a villain can have good manners. The virtue of courtesy is more than just etiquette. As human beings, we are comprised of both soul and body. And therefore, we can and should show respect for others by the way that we behave outwardly. But courtesy as a chivalric virtue is not merely external. A chivalrous man's courtesy, courtesy as a virtue, must proceed from the habit of living and acting in a way that pleases God. And true courtesy stems from a deep conviction about the goodness and worthiness of other people who are made in God's image. Courtesy is a presumption of goodwill. It is a willingness to treat other people rightly because it is pleasing to God. 
Therefore, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, even if they do not reciprocate, and even if we're not always treated rightly in the first place. Courtesy is a refusal to lower ourselves because others are discourteous to us. According to the chivalric code of war, it was considered a loss to win in an uncourteous way. You know, there there was an honorable way of entering into combat and a dishonorable way as well. The stories of the Knights of the Round Table are full of examples of courteous knights who would not fight an opponent who was disarmed or take advantage of a wounded enemy. Likewise, even if your battlefield is Facebook or Twitter, defense of the Catholic faith is, is not about winning arguments. Even though we firmly believe that we are on the side of right, that doesn't justify a win-at-any-cost kind of attitude. In our dealings with others, we must be unwilling to compromise our courtesy, unwilling to do what is unjust, unwilling to tell lies, unwilling to indulge in logical fallacies, unwilling to ruin the reputation of others. We should always strive to show people proper respect, even if we disagree with them. But that does not mean that you may not defend God's honor. Uh, whenever your good or your neighbor's good requires it. Courtesy has always been an aspect of any martial society, any any militant uh, culture. Think of the elaborate code of the samurai in feudal Japan. Um, Even in the Wild West, there was a preoccupation with courtesy because every man carried a gun. You know, they used to say God made man, but Colonel Colt made them equal. You know, in the original Western novel, Trampas calls the Virginian uh, a son of a you-know-what. And he responds, when you call me that, smile. Because his courtesy would allow him to take a joke, but not to suffer an insult to his honor. And his response, his courteous response, offers Trampas an honorable way out of his discourteous behavior so that they might avoid a gunfight. Hence the old saying, an armed society is a polite society. And I dare say, in a rightly ordered society, more people would curb their tongues than they do today, and there'd be less strife and violence because of it. Now, the next virtue of knighthood is prowess. Prowess. For a medieval knight, prowess referred primarily to uh, military skill, proficiency with arms, with lance and sword and horse and entailed intense training and and courage and physical strength. Now, for our spiritual chivalry, prowess refers essentially to cultivating the ability to effectively share and defend the faith, uh, which requires a combination of study, that is to say mental training, and moral courage and spiritual strength. Now, of course, there's a place for physical fitness, uh, even in spiritual chivalry. We consider the body the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we uh, do what we can to take care of it as well as our soul, even to mortify our flesh through uh, fasting and abstinence, periodically denying ourselves even that which is permitted so that we might more readily reject that which is forbidden. And this is part and parcel of loving your neighbor as yourself, which we talked about last week. To love others as you love yourself implies a proper self-love. And that's concerned first with your own spiritual well-being. And St. Paul often uses like those sports analogies for the spiritual life. 
Like he says, I train my body, I pummel my body and train it and bring it into submission. Um, you know, he talks about running the race and fighting the fight to describe that spiritual struggle. But most of all, prowess in our spiritual chivalry is the willing, uh, willingness to stand up and do what's right, even if it costs us something. To be willing to risk more than just our popularity to defend the honor of God. To be willing to make the effort to train ourselves in the defense of the faith, that we may always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for your hope, as directed by St. Peter in his first epistle. So, prowess, an important virtue of chivalry. And finally, one probably the least understood, uh, at least familiar, of the uh, virtues associated with chivalry, and that is largesse. Largesse. Also, you can understand that as generosity. You know, this is the virtue that helps us to see that when God has blessed us, we should recognize the needs of others. Largesse motivates us to engage in, in spiritual and corporal works of mercy. And once again, the stories of chivalry and King Arthur are replete with examples of the good king bestowing generous gifts on his knights and their ladies. Now, for the husband and father, whose home is his castle, largesse begins in the family. A father is the head of the household, and this is another area where men need to reclaim their natural authority, but with kindness, in a humble and, pardon me, a generous way. It's only too possible for a father to abuse his authority in the family, just to have his own way, you know, to, to, to make his own life more comfortable, to, to dismiss his wife and children, to treat them like servants. Those of us who are concerned with a revival of chivalry should make it our task to use such power and authority and strength as we have, such as we are given, in the service of others. Family first. Largesse is also connected to a, uh, a virtue that only rich people have. Did you even know that there was a virtue that only rich people have? Uh, It is a specific form of generosity that Aristotle, whom uh, Aquinas calls the philosopher, Aristotle called it magnificence. And we're going to talk about magnificence and give give uh, an example of magnificence when we come back and conclude our remarks about the five virtues of chivalry here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Stay with us. We'll be right back with lots more after this. Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the imminent threats on the internet. It's www.CovenantEyes.com 
com code vmpr live porn free thank you for listening to virgin most powerful radio thank you god bless you keep the faith jesus said in luke 17 when you have done all that you were ordered to do say we are unprofitable servants we have only done our duty according to saint john of the cross God is pleased with the little deeds we do in secret. He takes more pleasure in these than in a multitude of grand works that we may do out of the desire to be seen by others. May God help us to do the things that please Him and not just to appear great in the eyes of others. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. All right. Welcome back to um, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about a special uh, aspect of the virtue of largesse, the fifth of the chivalric virtues, and that is magnificence. Aristotle said, the magnificent man is like an artist, for he can see what is fitting and spend large sums tastefully. So magnificence requires a very public-spirited generosity, good sense, fine aesthetic taste, and a boatload of money. Now, there are sadly few examples of magnificence today, but, uh, but I will give you an example. Uh, we will turn to a castle called Neuschwanstein, built by King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Now, if you've ever seen Disney's classic Snow White, in, in the final scene, there appears a castle in the clouds. That castle was modeled after Neuschwanstein. If you've ever seen Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland, it is modeled after Neuschwanstein. If you've ever seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the exterior scenes of the fantasy sequence were filmed on location at Neuschwanstein. Uh, I was reading you know, for another project altogether. I was looking for alternative film versions of Snow White on Amazon Prime, and I found two that uh, featured the actual Neuschwanstein. One just uh, kind of exterior shots from a distance, but the other with uh, uh, scenes that were filmed in the courtyard and even in the interior of the castle. Now, Neuschwanstein is considered the quintessential medieval castle, but it was built in the 19th century. The world owes Neuschwanstein to the magnificence of King Ludwig II of Bavaria. He was also the patron of Richard Wagner. Now, he did not share Wagner's politics or his immorality, which was the ultimate cause of their falling out, but he did recognize his musical genius. Ludwig sent for Wagner when the composer was friendless and destitute. Without Ludwig's patronage, there would be uh, there would never have been a, a Rings of the Nibelung or, or Parsifal or a, a Bayreuth festival. 
And Ludwig also built other magnificent castles in addition to Neuschwanstein, including the, the Linderhof, which is in Etel near Oberammergau. I've, I've actually visited that. It was, in fact, I was in Bavaria for a week and I brought my uh, wife Betty along. We were speaking at a, uh, at a retreat there at this uh, Etel monastery, 13th century monastery. It's absolutely gorgeous. It is my one great regret that I did not um, just take it upon myself to stay for another couple of days and visit Neuschwanstein. I, I hope that I have uh, the opportunity. But uh, because of all of the castles he built, Neuschwanstein, the, the Linderhof, um, and, and, and others, <clears throat> he was dubbed the fairy tale king. He was a devout Catholic who assisted at Holy Mass every day, something of a romantic, uh, dedicated to the spirit of the Middle Ages. And he also never married, which, of course, today brings the unwholesome speculation regarding his sexuality. Personally, having studied the circumstances of his uh, short, brief reign, I believe that Ludwig chose a life of permanent continence because he knew that the days of authentic monarchy were over and rather produce an, uh, an heir to be just another royal figurehead, and there was no shortage of, of those in line for the throne anyway. He chose instead to leave a lasting legacy to the world through his magnificent castles, which not only housed many superb works of art, but are works of art themselves. As he got older, he got more reclusive, stopped appearing in public. Uh, he spent his time in his castles, reading, listening to music, working on his art. And before he uh, began construction on Neuschwanstein, certainly his most famous and celebrated work, he wrote to Wagner about his motivation. He said, I am planning to rebuild the old castle ruins of Hohenschwangau in the true style of German medieval castles. This spot is one of the most beautiful one can find, sacred and inaccessible. It is. It's in a remote, on a mountain in a forest. It's absolutely gorgeous. A worthy temple for the divine friend, source of the world's only true blessing and salvation. He's referring, of course, to Christ, truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. Unfortunately for Ludwig, not everyone appreciated his magnificence. He borrowed a great deal of money to uh, have the ready cash for construction, but he also had an immense fortune uh, amassed by the Bavarian royal family over some eight centuries. So, in other words, he was good for the loan. But that didn't thrill his extended family, uh, you know, who all wanted their piece of the pie uh, on his passing, and nor did it please his liberal government that wanted a less extravagant and more easily managed monarch. Right, he'd be, Bavaria had become a constitutional monarchy with a parliament and all that. So together they conspired against the king and sought to have him declared insane and therefore unfit to rule. And one thing offered in special proof of his insanity was that he invested money in an inventor who was building a flying machine. See, everybody could see how crazy it is to think that man could fly until a few years later when the Wright brothers unveiled their airplane. In point of fact, Ludwig was instrumental in raising the educational, uh, the educational level of the common people of Bavaria by building schools and colleges like a medieval king. Uh, besides Wagner's being Wagner's patron, he created an Academy of Fine Arts, the Institute of Technology in Munich. He patronized the Wittelsbach Foundation, supporting arts and crafts, and was also one of the first supporters of the Red Cross, which became an important international humanitarian organization. It's no wonder the people loved him. And Ludwig hated political intrigue, but he was destined to become its victim. Parliament sp 
spread false stories that were printed in the newspapers about him colluding with the French. Uh, the story had to be retracted a week later, but, you know, once the lie's out there, the damage is done. He's subjected to repeated false accusations in Parliament, including that uh, he was building a prison for his enemies at Neuschwanstein and other outrageous lies. Finally, he was forcibly confined uh, at Neuschwanstein, ostensibly to undergo psychological tests, and he suffered real persecution during that imprisonment, uh, not the least discovering that he had already been officially declared insane before the so-called testing even started. His personal servant, Fritz Schwegler, remarked how the king treated everyone, including his persecutors, with a rigid courtesy. He said he, he registered his amazement at how calm and composed the king was through this ordeal in the last days of his life, when he said he had to have realized the vastness of his betrayal. And he wasn't the only one to notice and, and to say something after his death. In fact, the, the king's demeanor had to be explained away as further proof of his, of his insanity, see? That he could continue to so deceive everyone around him, despite his intense madness. The fact that he appeared perfectly normal, that proves he was crazy. <laughs> Finally, <coughs> pardon me, on the evening of June 13, 1886, Ludwig went for a walk on the grounds with his psychiatrist, Dr. von Guden, and they didn't come back from the walk. The story is at 11 o'clock that night, they were found, both of them drowned, floating face down in a lake on the property. Now, we will never know. They, 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 they just said they died under mysterious circumstances. And we'll never know the side of heaven what really happened. But it's hard not, believe, hard not to believe that Ludwig was murdered. He became king at 18. He died at 41. In 1864, early in Ludwig's reign, Wagner somewhat prophetically wrote to a friend, The young king had me call on him. Today I was led before him. He is unfortunately so noble and brilliant, so magnificent and soulful. I fear his life must vanish like a fleeting stream in this coarse world. If only he can live, he is such an unheard-of wonder. Catholic king, knight of the Order of St. George, patron of the arts and sciences, creator of the most beautiful castle ever built. Ludwig of Bavaria is admired by many as a man who sought the ideal of the good and beautiful and found the immeasurable evil of the world. He lives on in the hearts of many as the fairy tale king. And it's funny, though, the argument against magnificence, it's always the same. It's crazy. How can you justify this wasteful spending? Who needs all this splendor? Right? That same argument is used today against magnificent churches. It is the age-old argument of the hypocrite. The argument of Judas when Mary Magdalene anointed our Lord with a precious nard. But Ludwig didn't spend municipal money on his art. And even if he had... Uh, as state-run, I mean, the state confiscated those things immediately, and as, as tourist attractions, Neuschwanstein, der Linderhof, the Hohenschwangau, the Hermann Kemsey, uh, have generated municipal income exceeding their cost many times over. Aristotle said of magnificence, the result should be worthy of the expense, and the expense should be worthy of the result, or even exceed it. And the magnificent man will spend such sums for honor's sake, for this is common to all the virtues. And further, he will do so gladly and lavishly, and he will consider how the result can be made most beautiful and most becoming, rather than for how much it can be produced or how it can be produced 
most cheaply. Now, in many ways, the story of uh, Ludwig II is a tragedy. But in light of his magnificence, it's glorious. I suppose my affection for the fairy tale king illustrates a truth uh, remarked by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. He said, to chivalrous souls, a pathetic failure often appeals more than an excellent success. Like the final charge of El Cid, or Roland sounding his horn in the Valley of Roncevaux, or Arthur at the Battle of Camelon. But none of these men were failures. They live on in honor as shining examples, because regardless of the forces arrayed against them, even to the very end, they did not fail in the exercise of the five virtues of chivalry. And that's no nonsense. Fidelity, honesty, courtesy, prowess, and largesse, the five virtues of chivalry. Next week, we are going to talk about the Ten Commandments of chivalry and how we can see them, use them, understand them in our own lives. And um, there's a couple of different lists. The most uh, authoritative, the one that everybody recognizes, was the one compiled by Léon Gautier in his uh, classic work on chivalry. And that's the one that will be um, the list we'll be looking at next week, beginning with Thou shalt believe all the church teaches and shalt observe all its directions. Thou shalt defend the church. Thou shalt respect all weakness and constitute the, thyself the defender of them. Thou shalt love the country in which thou wast born. Thou shalt not recoil before thine enemy. Thou shalt make war against the infidel without cessation, without mercy. Perform scrupulously thy feudal duties. Never lie. Be generous and give largesse to everyone. And be everywhere and always the champion of the right and good against injustice and evil. Chivalry is a high calling, but I would suggest to you that as Catholic Christian men especially, it's not negotiable that the call to chivalry and the call to holiness, which is universal in the church, the quest for Christian perfection, the admonition of Christ, are all one and the same. So we're going to talk about that next week, and I appreciate you being with us. I can tell you right now, if you're listening all the way to the end of the show like this, you are in an elite group, and I am proud to have you with us. Okay, doing it all again next week right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It's No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.